Blog Talk Radio. Welcome. You're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio with your host, Darren Batman McDuck. And now, prepare to get fat. Hey, hey, what's cracking? Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio brought to you by I'mTheFatMan.com. Explosive show tonight. We're going to be talking to Denise Menger about her book, Death by Food Pyramid. But before we do that, I don't know if you checked out the show last Monday. We had a real quick show with Hal Elrod on the Miracle Morning. That's a pretty powerful show, especially if you're someone who's looking to advance yourself to be a little bit more prosperous, to get some more success. I started the routine um, a couple of months ago. I pretty much get up at five every morning, do a little bit of meditation, and then start my day off with that. And that has proven to be really worked out really well for me. So go back and check that show out, The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod, and uh, just find out what you need to do to move your life forward. Now, tonight we have Denise Manger talking about Death by Food Pyramid. Uh before we get into the show, always connect with me on social media. Uh, it's good to connect with me so you'll know when the shows are coming up and other stuff that I'm doing. In order to connect with me on Facebook, you can connect with me two ways. One is through my name, Darren McDuffie, or you can connect with me on the fan page. That's facebook.com slash Radio. So facebook.com slash Radio. I'm also on Pinterest as my name, my surname, Darren McDuffie, so you connect with me there. Twitter is the fat underscore man, and fat is spelled P-H-A-T. So without further ado, let me bring on Denise Manger. Denise Manger, welcome to Fat Man Radio. How are you? Howdy. I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing awesome as well. Good to have you on to finally get a chance to talk about your book, Death by Food Pyramid. Um, what I normally do is just ask people how they got into this wacky world of nutrition. And you have a very interesting story. I was really uh, reading it in the book, but can you kind of relay that to the audience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of started young. Um, I went vegetarian when I was seven years old after nearly choking on a piece of steak while I was eating dinner one night. And I just became totally phobic of anything with the meat texture. And so I stopped eating, like, every meat that my mother tried to give me. I stopped eating, like, my favorite chef boyardee, what, ravioli stuff. I started just um, going vegetarian almost overnight. And as the years went on, like, in my still in my early years, I um, got more and more into, like, the ethical sides of vegetarianism, into this idea that meat was inherently very bad for you and you shouldn't be eating it anyway. And then by the time I was um, 14, I think it was 14, yeah, I went completely vegan and I stopped eating the remaining animal products that I did include, which included um, egg whites and, like, I think that was all I was eating at that point. And two years before that happened, I was also diagnosed with a wheat allergy, um, with a soy allergy, and with a dairy allergy. So as you might imagine, my diet was very restricted um, I was basically in the mode of social suicide in school because I had to come to school each day with this, like, disgusting tapioca bread with steak cheese in the middle. And, like, I hated it. I hated lunchtime. So I'd have to eat my weird food in front of my friends and pretend I was still cool. And it was just it was awful. It was traumatizing. So 
Um, the big change for me happened when I was 15 years old and I found something called the raw vegan diet. And the particular branch of raw veganism that I found, um, it was uh, put out by a guy named Doug Graham, who he was basically a fruitarian. He's also just a chiropractor, but he put the doctor in front of his name to make it seem official. And what he was promoting was eating a diet that was 80% carbohydrate. 10% fat and 10% protein, uh, basically based on sweet fruit, some leafy greens, and a very, very tiny amount of nuts and seeds. And so I was reading about this online. I was kind of searching for ways to make my body healthier at that point because despite being a vegan and eating pretty healthy at the time, uh, my immune system was horrible. I would get sick all the time. I, I'd get bronchitis, ear infections, just felt fatigued all the time. And um, so I was reading online those very seductive anecdotes about people who go raw vegan and overnight they look like supermodels and they can run a marathon and all that wonderful stuff. And I knew very little about nutritional science at that time. I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. And uh, so I was taken by these stories that I was hearing and I was inspired to adopt this diet very quickly. And so I spent an entire year eating nothing but raw fruit, vegetables, and a very, very small amount of nuts and seeds. And I will say the first few months were incredible. I, I had tons of energy for the first time in my life. My eyes actually started turning a lighter color. They went from like a darker kind of murky brown to a very bright green for a while. Um, I could run for the first time in my life for like miles without getting winded. It was incredible. I felt fantastic. And then, of course, that uh, was just temporary. <laughs> and a few months mm-hmm. later... I started noticing my hair was falling out. Um, I could not keep on weight no matter how many bananas I was chugging down. And the kicker for me came at the end of that one year when I went to the dentist. And I, I, my whole life I've been one of those OCD brushers and flossers. I cannot fall asleep if I have not brushed my teeth. My my brushing habits didn't change at all when I was a raw vegan. And up until that point, I'd have all, I'd had almost perfect dental health. And so I went to the dentist feeling like, oh, I'm a superhuman raw vegan, my teeth are going to be great. They're going to, like, praise me and give me toys and whatever at the end of my visit. And at the end of that visit, instead of the praise, um, I learned I had 16 cavities in my mouth that had developed, yeah, over the course of less than a year. And I was flabbergasted. It It was a huge blow to my ego as well as to everything I thought I had understood about nutrition. And so that was the starting place for me, um, basically being told that, hey, if your teeth keep up this rate of massive decay, you will need dentures by the time you're 30. And hearing that when you're a teenager, it's like, wow, that's kind of huge. Disengage from the raw vegan community and start looking for answers elsewhere, which for me ended up uh, being in like the Weston A. Price website, which up until that point I had actively hated just because when you're a vegan, you have to hate the Weston Price Foundation, it's okay <laughs> if you don't know what they are and what they stand for. You just have to yeah. eat them as part of veganism. It's, just, it's a rule. So um, I started reading about using raw dairy to heal your teeth. Um, I can't remember at that time if vitamin K2 was really well known, but I started eating uh, a type of fermented goat dairy that ended up being very high in vitamin K2, and that was the first thing that really started um, bringing these great, amazing, rapid changes to my dental health. And I did need a lot of work done on my teeth, but uh, the the rate of um, healing that occurred after changing my diet was phenomenal. And it was at that point that I realized, 
okay, maybe veganism is not the way to go. Maybe there's some nutrients that I do need in animal products. And that was a very humbling realization to me because I had been very staunch in my beliefs up until that point. And I realized basically how harmful that dogma had become to my health and to my psychology even. So that's kind of what got me on like this crusade to to empower people to think critically because what's happening in the raw vegan community, and maybe we can talk about this later in your show, um, it's mm-hmm. happening in the, the paleo community, it's happening in the low-carb community, it's happening in basically every insulated diet community out there. You, What happens is there's this group thing that develops as people share um, very closely agreed upon ideas and don't really receive a lot of outside information that they, they accept and judge and critique and uh, evaluate on their own terms. So um, my mission at this point really is just to educate people and have them learn how to take charge of their own health without needing to rely on authorities. Um, so that's that's basically the evolution of my diet. And then I started my blog, gosh, was that? I think that was 2010. I think mm-hmm. it was 2010. It was like, five, oh, my gosh, five years ago. I'm getting old. This is crazy. Five <laughs> years ago, I started my blog. Seriously, I turned 28 next week. I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm oh, like, my God. I'm, Don't, I'm like, whoa, I'm old. old. <laughs> 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 That's okay. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, I started my blog, and one of the first things I did on my blog was critique the China study, which is the vegan Bible, or at least mm-hmm. it was. I think it's it's lost some of its mystique at this point, but... At the time, it was like the answer to every argument you tried to throw against veganism, the answer would be just read the China study. And then I, I spent too much of my life, probably about a year, maybe two, on a lot of online vegan forums arguing about the China study, arguing about veganism not being the optimal diet. And I got so frustrated after a while because I kept getting banned from forums. People kept throwing the China study argument back at me. I decided mm-hmm. to start my own blog where nobody could ban me because it was mine, and I decided to look at the original data of the China study and just write a critique on it. Whatever I found, I decided I'll put it on the Internet. If it's right, I'll write about that. If it's wrong, I'll write about that. I just wanted to have a, a more objective source of analysis for people to turn to because I felt like the China study book itself was very heavily biased. So I ended up spending several months like nerd style, just hardcore going over all these numbers. And what I found was that the China study indeed was very misleading. It was very cherry picked. I did not agree with um, Campbell's uh, conclusions in most um, most of the ways that he presented them. So right. I just wrote a critique on that, and I sent it to a few people who I thought might be interested in reading it. And almost overnight, my blog went from having maybe a dozen readers to having like I think it was 20,000 views in one day. And I was shocked. Like, that was, it was just this little dinky blog that I didn't expect anyone to read. But it was a huge blessing because I've I've really come to love the experience of blogging and being able to put information out there and reach a large large audience. Um, So that's what I try to do now, even though my poor blog gets updated, like, once a year. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I heard you on on Facebook saying that you were going to do a blog post, and someone said, oh, really, a new blog post? So you haven't been doing a a lot of writing. But, you know, you're busy, so I can understand that. Yeah, I'm busy, and I figure my blog posts are, like, 15,000 words, so it's kind of the equivalent of a whole bunch of blog posts at once. Yeah, I've read some of your stuff, and it's like you got to really have time to sit down and digest it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah, about that. Yeah. 
No, no problem. Let me ask you this before we actually get into talking about the book. Um, this is one of the things that I find um, very intriguing is the fact that you were able to change. You knew that something wasn't working for you. And what I see a lot, and you talked about this, touched on this a little bit, is that you have people who are in this group thinking they're scared to come out of that to say, hey, you know what, well, maybe I need to put some potatoes in my diet. Maybe this will serve me better. What made you right. not be afraid? And what you're seeing now is I see a lot of people now that were once vegans or, or vegetarians are now starting to eat meat. What, what do you think is actually happening? Um, well, I think there's probably a few things happening. One is the more people that do come out of the community and are public with their stories, the more they inspire those other people who are lurking in the shadows, who are maybe a little more passive, a little more afraid of being bold and making a change. Um, they become inspired to kind of follow that. Once there's somebody leading by example, you have others who are kind of in the same boat saying, oh, well, if that person added back fish, maybe I can do that too. Um, so there's that going on. But at the same time, I think just from a health perspective, there's a point where you reach with your own body where you the pain of feeling the way that you feel becomes so much worse than the pain of having to come out of the closet and make a change. So I, th I think for a lot of people, they reach a point where something about their health is so difficult or they just wake up every single day feeling so crappy that they are, at that point, um, they decide that making that change is the the, the worst or the, the lesser of whatever evils of options they have at that point. And yeah. uh, more broadly, too, that I think, like for me, when I came out of that closet, um, I, I just, I guess my whole philosophy at this point is that it's it's much better to focus on the pursuit of finding the truth rather than having this mentality of I need to find what's right and own it and integrate my my lifestyle into my sense of worth and my sense of identity. Because when people go that route, it is so much more difficult to disentangle yourself. It's much better to see yourself as, say, somebody who is currently consuming a vegan diet versus saying, I am vegan, versus getting a vegan for life who on your forehead. Being with like paleo, it's much better to say I'm currently eating a diet that is eliminating certain foods that don't agree with my body versus saying I am paleo, I am Grox Jr., I am whatever, whatever, whatever. We just need to be conscious of the fact that our lifestyle choices are not what define us. They're just, um, they are just choices that we're making at a particular moment in time, and they can be subject to change. And so just maintaining that sense of freedom in your mind that you know that you are free and you have the option to change your mind at any point without it deeply injuring your sense of self, that's mm -hmm. really important for people. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly right, with that because I mm -hmm. see a lot of people who are vegetarians and they are you know, they look a little emaciated, and it's like, dude, mm -hmm. eat some, eat some meat, put some <laughs> meat back in your diet. Yeah. But, and then to me, um, sometimes their definition of looking good and is more of a like a skinny definition versus, you know, someone who is eating a lot of different things within their, within their diet. They tend to be a little bit more. I guess the word I could use to say robust versus the yeah. vegetarian thing of, of skinny versus someone who's eating a better diet, and they they tend to be a little bit more robust. But anyway, nothing against vegetarians out there. You do what you do. 
<laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, it's just like yeah. But I, I think that every I think that everybody evolves, and we should not stay in one box. You should kind of get out of that box. But let's get into the book. Um, mm-hmm. When I was a kid, uh, you mentioned lunch when you you had to eat all these strange things in front of your you know your peers when you were a kid. When I was a kid, we always had the food pyramid, and I always wondered where this thing came from. We t- we talked about it in, in PE. And no one ever could tell us where it came from. I just thought it was just something that someone thought of. Where did the food pyramid actually originate? So the food pyramid has a pretty interesting history, and it's kind of helpful to, like, scroll way back to almost, say, like, mid, mid-1900s to see where all of this began. Um, so essentially the American population, up until about World War II, Our biggest diseases were things like infection, malnutrition, not eating enough food, um, chronic or not, or like acute illnesses, things that you would catch and uh, that would kill you very quickly. And it was only around World War II where those disease patterns started to shift because all of a sudden we had better sanitation, we had better uh, hygiene, we had better access to food, we had. uh, in many ways, a more nutritionally complete diet because we started fortifying things. We started learning more about um, the daily allowance of vitamins and minerals. And all of a sudden, these disease trends started shifting to where all of a sudden we were getting cancer and heart disease, obesity started, um, diabetes, all these chronic diseases that we hadn't really seen in great numbers before. And so when this started happening, say like 1950s, definitely started speeding up through the 60s and 70s, the government was like, wow, we have to do something because healthcare costs are getting out of control. We have all these people dying of all these new chronic diseases, and we can't really afford to, like, keep them healthy. We can't afford to keep medicating them and trying to keep them alive. So the first line of defense ended up being to create new dietary guidelines for America that would effectively, hopefully, prevent these chronic diseases and put a, ha- a cap on the health care costs. So that's where the 1977 dietary goals started coming into place, this recommendation to cut back on animal products, most notably saturated fat and cholesterol, um, eat a diet that was a bit higher in carbohydrate. Most people don't realize that there was actually a restriction on sugar and salt that they also placed on it, but the food industry managed to kind of sneak that one away. And so that eventually um, gained more steam through the 1980s and 90s as research was being done. And uh, so, of course, our nation started steering in this new direction um, that was very carbohydrate-based and lower in fat, although not it wasn't a super low-fat diet, more low in saturated fat and cholesterol. So where the food pyramid itself started was with a woman named Louise Light. And she had been teaching at New York University. Um, she was fresh out of school. She was she was very interested in um, public policy. She had a great drive, ambition to help the American public be healthy. And she got invited by the USDA to come move down to Maryland and work at the Beltsville Agricultural Research Center, which is where they were conducting a lot of research at the time for the USDA. And she was invited essentially to build the nation's next food guide because the guide that we'd been using up until that point was the basic four, which is just four food groups that didn't have any recommendations on specific serving amounts, um, was not designed at all to prevent chronic disease. It had been in place pretty much since World War II, and it was way outdated. 
So Louise Light, she jumped at the chance to do this, and she moved with her family down to Maryland, spending an entire year going through tons and tons of scientific research that was available at the time. She convened meetings between agricultural experts and nutritionists and scientists from all over the country, and she was trying to distill what the recommendations for the optimal diet for the American people would be. And what she ended up deciding and coming up with based on her understanding of the research was that a diet based on fresh fruits and vegetables, um, I think it was about nine servings she was recommending of those, she thought that would be a great foundation for any food pyramid. She thought she actually believed in a fairly liberal use of what she considered healthy fats, things like olive oil, uh, cold water fish with lots of omega-3s, flaxseed oil, um, uh, I don't know if she promoted butter at that time, though towards the end of her life she did. And she believed that grain should actually be limited to two to three servings a day per person with three grains only being allowed for people who are extremely active, larger men, that sort of thing, whereas um, like a smaller female might only need like one to two grain servings uh, a day. And so she felt like this is where all of the evidence was pointing she didn't think that America should be on a starch-based diet, especially with our activity levels. She thought that that would be a recipe for obesity and diabetes. And so she came up with this fantastic new food plan. She was really excited about it, and she submitted it to the USDA um, Secretary of Agriculture to get it approved. And she waited a little while, and it came back to her completely revised, completely mangled, and essentially turned into a, a pretty mirror image of what the, the eventual food pyramid would be, all of a sudden those grain servings that she thought should be quite limited had exploded to form the base of the food pyramid, um, 6 to 11 servings. All of a sudden the vegetable and fruit intake that she recommended had gotten slashed down to about two to three servings of fruits and vegetables total per day. Um, fats and oils were considered to be used sparingly, and... She saw absolutely no scientific rationale for why these changes had been made. And so she ended up asking her boss, what the heck happened? Why did, this, why did they change it like this? And the only answer she received was that they had to change the, uh, the food pyramid because the, um, the cost of the food stamp program would be far too high if people were eating a lot of fruits and vegetables. And the USDA's rationale also was that grains, and fruits and vegetables are all nutritionally equivalent. And therefore, it doesn't matter if you're eating a bunch of Wonder Bread instead of some carrots and an apple because it's all the same. And, of course, Louise Light totally didn't buy that. She felt the whole time that she was being told a lie, and she could never truly get to the bottom of why those changes happened, but she was horrified by them, and she was also powerless to really do anything about it. So it wasn't until the early 90s that we actually ended up getting our food pyramid um, fully established after it went through much testing in terms of what shape it should be in, how it should be presented to the public, so on and so forth. And uh, it actually got held up for a year for publication after it had been totally ready for the printer. Um, the meat industry had actually badgered the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, a guy named Edward Madigan, and they said, we don't like how our meat stuff is being portrayed in the food pyramid because it's right next to the use sparingly section at the top of the pyramid, and we think people are going to assume that meat is bad for you because of that. So after um, another year and almost a million dollars worth of tax money 
went back into to working on this pyramid. It was finally released in 1992. And as you remember from your childhood and I remember from my childhood, it was pretty much taught to everybody in school. It was on the back of cereal boxes. It was on, mm-hmm. like, posters and coloring books and, like, board games. They did bingo cards. They did food pyramid, everything. And it became the basis of um, school lunch programs, what they served in prison, what they served in hospitals, what they could serve in after-school programs. Basically, even if you didn't deliberately follow the food pyramid, it was going to affect you in one of those ways. And so the pyramid was in place for quite a while, and fortunately it is now retired, although what we have in the place isn't that much better. These weird plates and stuff. Yeah. This woman, um, her name was Louise Louise Light, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, she seemed to be pretty clairvoyant because I'm remembering from the book where um, she was uh, talking about uh, if they didn't change something, then we would have more obesity, more more uh, diabetes, and, and different types of things. And it seems like that's happened. Now, you know, a lot of people are are are, are getting more on a nutritional bandwagon and finding out what's going wrong. But she was pretty clairvoyant um, in what she said before the food. You know, when the when the, they didn't change the food pyramid. And um, let's talk a little bit about the USDA, because this seems to be a recurring theme throughout uh, the government agencies where <clears throat> they're influencing uh, or influenced by politics more so than what's good for the people. Can you talk a little right. bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the USDA, the big problem with the USDA is that they are in charge of protecting agricultural interests. That's why it's the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, this was actually not a big issue back when the USDA first came into place. It was signed into existence by Abraham Lincoln back in the 1800s, and its mission at that time was just to disseminate information related to agriculture to the American public. And once again, back then, our biggest diseases were things like malnutrition. And so encouraging people to eat a lot of food and eat more, eat more diversity, eat of all the beautiful crops that the U.S. can produce, those were actually kind of good things for the American public at that time. So it was going to protect against issues related to starvation and malnutrition. Um, unfortunately, as the years went on, the USDA kept that, that uh, control over giving U.S. Uh, the United States dietary guidelines. But at the same time, our disease patterns started to shift in a way where continuing to eat the USDA's largest commodities and crops, which include you know, grains, um, especially corn and uh, wheat, as well as soy, and um, continuing to eat those foods was actually becoming counterproductive because Clearly, um, the USDA had to promote mass consumption of its most profitable most profitable products, while at the same time, the American public was at a point where we were facing all these diseases related to diet, and we needed to focus on that instead. So it became kind of a catch-22 because the USDA is trying, on one hand, to give the United States um, information and guidance on what to eat, but it has to do that in the, within the context of continuing to make a profit for farmers and for agriculture in general. So there's really no way for the USDA to be unbiased in the information it gives us. Um, and that's not to say that everything the USDA produces is completely wrong. We have a, a giant evidence libra- uh, library online right now that you can read, like, the research that they're drawing from to create our guidelines, and, you know, some of it's legit, some of it's kind of not. But overall, there's this con- conflict of interest, which is directly built into the USDA, 
And unless um, control over the dietary guidelines for Americans taken out of the USDA and given to a different department, that conflict of interest is always going to be there. It is always going to raise some red flags whenever they release new guidance for Americans. We have to think extra critically about what they're telling us. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, this whole suggestion of eating more grains had to do with subsidies? Because I know that the government started subsidizing, you know, years and years ago, and they threw a lot of money in that for the farmers. But did that have anything to do with the, the suggestion of eating more grains and, you know, the USDA got caught in the middle of all that? Right. It's, I think there's two things that happened with that, and I do think one of them is that financial interest and economic interest especially because in the 1970s, a lot of crazy stuff was happening with our our crops. Um, We faced some big droughts. We faced some boom years. We faced um, some major loss of profit for farmers to the point where they were protesting in front of the Secretary of Agriculture's office to the point where the Secretary of Agriculture would have to crawl out of his bathroom window to get home because people were standing at his front door um, like basically ready to lynch him because they wanted Washington to do something to help their profits. And most of these people are grain farmers. So there's mm-hmm. definitely pressure to to get grains out there more and to continue consumption of them, either through the American mouth or through um, livestock that consumes grain as well. Um, so that was going on. And at the same time, uh, from a scientific perspective, what happened is that a lot of people, um, researchers, who were who uh, contributing to the, the um, dietary goals for the United States in 1977, um, what they were doing is they were drawing from information that they had collected from World War II, where they found that in the areas that had been rationed, had their diets rationed, had a, had a decrease in meat consumption, dairy consumption, total fat consumption during the war, these areas seemed to have an improvement in things like heart disease and other vascular diseases. And so they are doing the whole correlation is causation thing, and they're saying, okay, well, these rationed areas were eating less animal products, they're eating a higher carbohydrate diet, and they're kind of healthier. So maybe we should do that same thing to America and put us on a diet that's kind of mimicking war-rationed Europe and see if that can cure our heart disease. And so that was some of the mentality that was going into the creation of the dietary goals in 1977, as well as beyond. People still draw from that World War II data quite frequently. Um, the problem is, is that, and this is actually something I'm going to be talking about in my blog post that's coming up, so if anyone's listening out there, just hang on tight. I swear it's going to be posted, like, <laughs> in a few months, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'll try. I'll try to get it by the end of the month. Um, but... I'll I'll save the detailed explanation for my blog so people can uh, have something to look forward to. But the basic story here is that they were using that information and then not applying it in the same way that it would apply during World War II because that was a controlled situation where calories were restricted, fat intake was generally kept very low, um, and as I'll explain in my blog, when you have a very low fat intake in the context of a very high carbohydrate t- intake, it actually has a very different metabolic effect than if you're eating a moderate fat diet with a lot of carbohydrates, which is basically what America does. So what happened is we ended up creating this watered-down version of a war-rationed Europe diet and get- telling Americans to eat that way without actually having clinical evidence that that would have positive health outcomes. And it really didn't, and it still does not. So there's a mixture of that going on where people were being encouraged to eat more carbohydrates based on this old data, um, combined with, of course, the effect of USDA 
needing to promote grain products to keep the farmers happy. So those two things together kind of contributed to the mess that we're currently in. Yeah. Let's get into, because um, we could probably spend the whole show just talking about this alone because it was a hot mess. And that, and that was um, that was Keys. I wanted to talk about Keys for Ansel Keys because he's kind of started this whole thing of us being scared of fat. And then um, talk a little bit about McGovern. But I wanted to cover uh, Keys first. And while you're on Keys, can you talk about some things that were wrong with his study and um, just some things in general with regards to what do you look for? And I know this is a, it's a loaded question, but what do you need to look for when you're studying? I'm familiar with this stuff because I was in pharma, so we always had to read studies. But I know that the general mm-hmm. audience out there isn't familiar with how to read a study, how to kind of pick it apart like you do. Um, mm-hmm. But let's just kind of get into keys and this whole thing of what he did and why his study was, was completely wrong. Okay, well, I'm really glad you asked this question because it's the perfect time to clear up some misconceptions that I think most people, especially in the paleo community, have about Keys. I actually don't think he's an awful, horrible, evil villain um, the way some people do, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, So Ansel Keys, he was a – how do you describe Ansel Keys? Well, let's let's start a little bit before Keys. Um, So Ansel Keys was actually not the first person to promote a low-fat diet. And he was, was not the first one, especially to use it in a clinical setting um, to help heart disease patients, diabetics, sclerosis, so on and so forth. There's actually a really amazing amount of research being done in the early 1900s, starting in the 1930s, um, with a guy named Walter Kempner, another guy named Roy Swank, another guy named Lester Morrison, and then, of course, later Nathan Pritikin. All of these, these people were doctors who were... Um, basically using a very similar diet, which actually goes back to that war ration Europe diet that was extremely low in fat and high in complex carbohydrates. And so even before Keyes had started his research, back when he was still like even a teenager shoveling bat poop in Arizona, which was one of his jobs at that point, um, there were these researchers who were performing clinical studies on people, putting them on diets that were up to to and beyond 90% carbohydrate and uh, about 5% fat or less. And what they were finding is that they would put heart disease patients on this extremely high-carbohydrate diet, um, and those heart disease patients would experience incredible improvements. The same would happen with diabetics, eating diets of 90% and higher carbohydrate. The same thing was happening with multiple sclerosis patients who who were seeing a stabilization and even reversal of their symptoms and condition eating an extremely high uh, carbohydrate, extremely low-fat diet. And so this is very little-known research, especially in the paleo community. And this is the main subject of my upcoming blog post because I personally think it's fascinating. It goes against a lot of what we believe can be true. Um, So before Ansel Keys was even doing any of this, there were actually quite a few researchers working um, on low-fat diets and doing experiments with them, studying them in a clinical setting, and achieving very impressive results. So as that was going on, um, Ansel Keys, he he was doing quite a few things before he got into the whole fat field. Um, in fact, he did one of the most interesting and informative studies we have on starvation. And what he did was he rounded up some conscientious objectors to the war, and he put them on very low-calorie diets that were monitored. They were put through some strenuous activity each day, 
and he monitored the, the psychological and physical effects of starvation. And what he found was that these people essentially developed eating disorders as they were put on these extremely low-calorie diets and forced to stay on them. Um, people were, one man, I feel like he, what was the thing he did? He like chopped off one of his fingers or something and couldn't remember if it was intentional or not. Other people became totally OCD about reading recipe books and hoarding rutabagas and like cabbage. Mm-hmm. And so these people started going crazy on their starvation diet. And uh, so Ansel Keys wrote an amazing tome on the effects of that. It's still, I think, one of the classics that we have in literature. So even people who think that all the stuff he did with fat and cholesterol and saturated fat was awful, um, he actually did contribute some really important things to our our, uh, our repertoire of literature out there in science. So after he did that starvation experiment, and especially after the war ended, he started noticing that the rates of heart disease deaths in his hometown as well as all over the country started rising dramatically, especially among um, middle-aged men, especially among businessmen in particular. And he was curious why that was occurring. So that launched him on this particular path of looking at um, national dietary data and comparing rates of heart disease death with national fat consumption. And the study, there's two studies that people kind of confuse with each other. One was his earlier study, which was just a six-country graph that he presented at two conferences. One was the World Health Organization Conference in Geneva, and one was uh, just a symposium, I believe, at a hospital in New York. And what this graph showed, which this is the image that most people think of when they think of Ansel Keys, it's this perfect curved line that goes up, connecting all these dots, like Japan, United States, a whole bunch of dots, showing um, that the more fat a nation was consuming, the higher its rate of heart disease. And from that, from seeing that information, so the story goes, Ansel Keys thought, wow, so maybe there's something to the idea that eating more fat is actually contributing to people's heart disease. And at that time, the whole idea that nutrition had anything to do with heart disease was kind of laughable. People really hadn't put two and two together yet. And so when he first presented his ideas at the World Health Organization conference, he was essentially laughed out of the building. Um, nobody believed him. He was ridiculed. People shot down his ideas who were far better at debate than he was. And he kind of had to fly back home with his tail between his legs thinking, wow, I have this really cool theory, but no one believes me. And so that humiliation that he experienced um, back, this was in the 1950s, it encouraged him to design a better, better conducted, better planned study where he could actually test his ideas a little more thoroughly. And what that idea started becoming was what most people know of as the seven-country study, which is not anything right. related to the six-country study. So people often think the six-country graph and the seven-country study was the same. They're not. And a lot of people accuse Keys of picking the countries that he used for that perfect curve. And there's some, some truth to the idea that he could have included more countries, but he actually did provide rationale for why he only chose the ones that he put on, which is the reason was that those were the only countries at the time that had reliable data for him to use. So whether you want to believe that or not, you know, that's up in the air. But um, just to make that clear for anyone listening, those, these are two very different studies. And Ansel Keys actually did not cherry pick the seven country study at all. It's completely different. So anyway, so the seven country study he ended up conducting, um, it's actually, I think it's still being I think there's still waves of it being conducted. I'm not quite sure. But nonetheless, it lasted a very long time, and it was a study that 
looked at um, different cohorts of people within seven different study or seven different countries and followed them in terms of tracking their diet and seeing what their disease outcomes were over the course of multiple years. And from this, he also felt like he was able to make the argument that a higher saturated fat intake was correlating with um, more heart disease deaths, maybe more mortality in general. And towards the end of his life, he ended up promoting the Mediterranean diet, which he thought was the most helpful, higher in, in monounsaturated fat, but still very low in saturated fat and red meat. So I'm, I'm actually probably in the minority here in that I don't think Steve was um, a horrible individual. I do think he was far too headstrong in the way he promoted his ideas without sufficient evidence at first. And I'm not sure that the Mediterranean diet is the superior diet, as he eventually concluded. Um, but the seven-country study itself, it's, it's kind of misleading because one of, for just take one example, um, Greece was one of the areas that he looked at in terms of tracking cohorts of individuals. And what he ended up doing was in Greece, um, when they took dietary surveys there, much of Greece and the area that they were looking at are Orthodox Christians, and they have very strict fat fasting rituals that they um, follow over the course of the year where they spend probably about half the year in some form of modified or complete fast, often for right. animal products. So mm -hmm. there was a bit of a confounder because of some of the surveys that he took in, in Greece were on days where they were fasting. And so it gave the impression that these people were not eating much fat and that they weren't eating very much animal products. And um, so it kind of skewed the result of what he later developed to be the Mediterranean diet because it was based on information that was not reliable from the get-go. So there is some question about that. Um, but overall, the, the seven-country study was not a perfectly consistent argument that saturated fat is bad. It, was not, it did not consistently support the idea that we should not be eating egg yolks or animal products. It's been very much misinterpreted over the years to promote certain ideas that it really doesn't support. It's not a terrible study, but it's, um, it's definitely been giving too much weight in the scientific world up until this point. Yeah, it seems to me that, that he was the, the founding father of, of the birthing father, so to speak, of, of vegetable oils and how we got all this stuff into our diets. But there were some interesting things uh, in the book that you found out about fat and cholesterol. And um, they came from, I think he found some things out, but they also came from something, if we fast forward years later, from the Framingham study. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, which part are you talking about The with fat and cholesterol? Yeah, the Framingham study where um, people who had higher cholesterol were, uh, I think it had something to do with cancer, and there were a couple of other things that were found out by having fat in oh, the yeah. diet. Yeah, well, so the one of the interesting parts of the Framingham study, and this is ironic because that data is often used to support a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet. Um, what they found is that people with higher cholesterol were not necessarily getting more heart disease. In fact, it was people with higher cholesterol in some, some of the uh, measurements they took that were actually seemed protected from heart disease and were living longer. And, it's, it's, again, it's like one of those correlation is not necessarily causation things. Um, but we, what we do know from multiple sources is that very low cholesterol levels tend to associate with um, quite a few unpleasant things. One of them is cancer. Another is violent crimes, suicide, mental disorders, 
a lot of neurological problems, which kind of makes sense because your brain loves cholesterol. So there's um, definitely some issues with the idea of wanting to, to lower your cholesterol as low as it can go and just for the sake of supposedly protecting your heart because the effect that has on the rest of your body, you know, you're not just made of heart, you're made of a lot of other stuff. The effect that has on the rest of your body can be very harmful, at least it seems that way. Yeah. Uh, another blow to our, and I'm trying to cover everything here. We only got about 15 minutes. But um, another blow to our nutritional uh, chest, uh, so to speak, was uh, George McGovern. And he's probably mm-hmm. another, Keys is kind of the father, and then George McGovern is, is maybe like the stepfather of our, you know, the modern diet, the low fat, and staying away from fat as well. But talk a little mm-hmm. bit about George McGovern. And I think you actually got to interview someone that was – is he still living, McGovern? Is he still living or is he um, – McGovern has passed away, but I did interview okay. Nick Mottern, who is yeah, – he, so. he was a Harvard – he was a graduate of Columbia University School of Journalism, fresh out of school, bright and shiny, just wanted to help the world, kind of a bleeding heart kind of guy. Still works in that, for that kind of thing. He does drone activism now. He's much older, of course. Um, but I, I was able to interview him, and basically he was hired onto the McGovern Committee. Um, and just to back up, McGovern was a senator at the time who was in charge of uh, the Committee of um, Nutrition and Human Needs, or I can't remember the exact wording. Uh, but he was basically, he created this committee with the intent initially to stop um, hunger in America. There had been this, this uh, program that had aired in the 19, I think it was in the late 1960s or early 1970s, I can't remember at the moment, um, but it exposed this incredible epidemic of hunger that existed within America, and it completely shocked people because everyone thought, hey, we're in America, we're in the land of abundance, everyone's got enough to eat, and yet here are, all the, are these pockets of poverty where people are struggling to put a drop of, uh, you know, like a piece of bread on their plate for dinner. So McGovern was deeply touched by what he saw in that news report, and he ended up assembling this committee. Um, it was bipartisan. There were people from all over, different senators coming to help and lend their support, and its whole mission initially was to um, prevent hunger and to help people get financial support, things like food stamps, um, if they were struggling and could not afford to eat. So the committee kind of did an awesome job with those goals, and uh, of course, as any committee with a specific mission must face eventually, once that mission is fulfilled, the committee is supposed to disband. And McGovern at the time, he had he had uh, actually run for office and had faced an extremely devastating loss to the point where he had considered moving overseas to, like, the U.K. and living with his wife because he was so ashamed to be in America. Um, he kind of fungled, funneled his his sadness and his grief from his presidential loss into beefing up this this, uh, committee even more. And he decided to shift their focus from just starvation and hunger to preventing chronic disease. And so that's when he started convening expert committees and getting all sorts of people um, to offer their opinions on what, what can we do in America to improve our nutritional standing and prevent all these chronic diseases that are starting to take us over. And so this guy, Nick Modern, who I ended up interviewing, he was the one who was hired, essentially, to write the entire report based on, of course, the feedback he was getting from other people. And so I was very eager to talk to him because I was curious what his experience was like. And it turns out um, they, too, they were – so they went back in the the World War II data 
And the original inspiration for the dietary guidelines, again, it was this war-rationed Europe diet that was very high in carbohydrate, very low in fat and animal products, and that seemed to correlate during the war with a decrease in vascular diseases. And so they used that as their basis. Um, they brought in more information, more people's opinions to, to bolster that. Um, but as I was talking to Nick Martyr, and he made it very clear that that's, that was what they were going for. It was to kind of recreate a war ration diet and bring wow. that to America. And um, what was very interesting to me, though, was that Nick told me that after they had uh, issued a preliminary report with some of the recommendations, which included not just the reduction in meat, but also a reduction in refined carbohydrate, a reduction in sugar intake, um, the food industries became such bullies to the McGovern Committee that they were forced to cave on a lot of their recommendations and basically soften their message to say, well, you can still eat red meat as long as it's lean, or you can still eat these refined grain products as long as you're still eating some whole grains. And the message was so watered down that Nick Modern felt ethically uncomfortable continuing to work for the McGovern Committee. And so he essentially resigned. And uh, the McGovern report that eventually got released, it featured all of those changes that had been pressured by the food industry. And um, so it was, it was a document that started out with good intentions but became um, rather diminished because of the ways uh, the food industry had intervened. Yeah. Wasn't uh, McGovern also a, a, a follower of the uh, Pritikin diet? He was. He's actually fairly good friends with Nathan Pritikin, who is, for anyone who doesn't know, he was um, a major heart disease guy. Who, he opened a clinic in Santa Monica where he'd have thousands of patients come in, put them on a very low-fat diet, combine it with some walking, and had great success reversing people's heart disease. And McGovern had gone through this program at, some, at one point, I think his wife, and sister-in-law had also gone through that program. And he didn't follow the diet perfectly, but his wife had been trained um, cooking style to produce very low-fat food. McGovern tried to the best of his ability to continue eating a low-fat diet uh, wherever he went. And so he was a big believer in that diet, and he was definitely a big promoter of it. And so Pritikin's influence um, almost definitely bled into the report as it eventually uh, materialized. Yeah. Now, talking about saturated fat, meat always comes to mind. And I remember um, this is how I found you through a YouTube video and we're talking about meat. I was doing some research on red meat because every place you look now, if you're on Facebook or, you know, something pops up on your phone and you check it, it's like red meat is bad, red meat causes <laughs> cancer, all these different things. But I remember seeing you on a YouTube video and I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about meat. What's the... What's the story on meat? Is it bad for us? Is it good for us? Um, what's the story on it? So I'd say the answer is very nuanced. I, I, I will not say that meat is either good or bad. I will say it depends on where it's sourced from and most in particular how it is prepared. And so if, when we see all these conflicting meat is bad stories, the first thing to remember is that most of them are population studies where you're looking at what certain people are eating within a population and you're linking it to their specific health outcomes over some period of time. And what we could see if we even just look out our window is that we've been so inundated with this meat is bad message that with the exception of, you know, low carbers, paleo eaters, and those who are very specific about their health choices, um, most of the people who are eating a lot of red meat, they're just the people who just really don't give a damn about their diet. They don't really care <laughs> yeah. that much about their health. 
because they're like, well, I'm just going to eat the hot dog because it tastes good, or I'm, then I'm going to eat the ice cream because it tastes good, or I'm just going to sit here and not exercise because I'm lazy. You know, not to make fun of people. It's, that's kind of an overgeneralization. But generally people who are eating a lot of red meat, that choice fosters with a lot of other health, um, non-promoting choices that are also going to impact what their disease state is over the course of time. So people who are eating a lot of red meat, they're often – they have a tendency to smoke more, to drink more, to exercise less, to eat less vegetables, to eat more refined grain. And what these studies try to do is, from a statistical angle, um, you can adjust for, like, people's exercise levels, and you can kind of adjust for their BMI, you can adjust for their smoking status, their educational status, whatever you want. But those are really artificial manipulations of data that's really not completely accurate to begin with. So it's never going to be perfect. And what we'll find is in these red meat studies, you'll see some really strong link between red meat and, let's say, colon cancer. And then after you adjust for a few variables like somebody's exercise status and drinking status, you'll find that that, that uh, association is a bit smaller. You adjust for a few more things. It's a little, still a bit smaller. And it usually never goes away completely. But it's so hard to say that, yes, it is meat causing this problem when the data that we're using is basically surveying people and expecting them to, A, be honest, and B, actually remember what they ate over the course of the past four years. And those are a, kind of a big leap of faith to trust that those things are going to be accurate. So I, my advice to people when you see one of those XYZ food is, has linked to XYZ disease if you notice that it's an observational study rather than a clinical study that has a control group and was performed by manipulating a specific variable, um, if it's an observational study, take it for it with a big grain of salt and don't get too worried about it. Now, all that said, I will say that there are some legitimate problems with meat that people should be aware of and shouldn't just dismiss as a product of fear-mongering. And some of those are involve cooking method. And this is something that I, I think I talked about in that presentation you saw, which I imagine yeah. was Meet Your Meat. I think that was at the Ancestral Health Symposium a few years ago. So one of the things I tried to touch upon in that talk was the idea of if you cook your meat very harshly, there's a great chance that you're creating certain carcinogens that, we don't have a ton of data on in humans, but we have reasonable certainty that they can produce cancer in certain contexts. And um, some of those problems are things like um, poly polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs. Um, those can cause when you're those can form when you're grilling meat, um, exposing meat to high temperatures. Same with um, HCA. There's a lot of different compounds, chemical compounds that can be created when meat is exposed to open flame or a few drippings that splash up out of fire and, like, hit the meat again. The message here is that you probably should not be grilling your meat very frequently. You probably shouldn't be frying it too frequently. If you're going to be a big meat eater, you should almost definitely stick to gentle cooking methods like stewing or even baking. And um, so that's something I recommend for anybody who's, who does have a significant meat intake because we do have some plausible mechanisms for meat contributing to cancer and maybe some other negative health outcomes if you're preparing it in a way that causes the meat itself to become harmful. And that's, in fact, when you do even look at observational studies, the ones that divide meat intake based on the cooking method used often show that it's not just 
meat in general that is associating with these diseases. It's specifically meat that has been cooked well done. So that's really important for people to be aware of. Um, and then another issue, of course, which I also talked about in that presentation, is the idea of our obsession with muscle meat in America. Yeah. Like we yeah, always, you know, we want the that. chicken breast and the the chicken thigh. <laughs> we want the beef. I don't even know beef parts. I don't really, I don't really eat beef. But you know, all the cow parts are just basically skeletal muscle tissue. And not that long ago, you can even look at some cookbooks from like the early 1900s, and you'll see what I'm talking about. People tried to use every single part of the animal that they could make edible. That includes bones, using bones for bone broth. It includes using all of the organ meats, liver, tongue, kidney, stomach, intestines, all that fun stuff. People would use all of these different foods and make meatloaves, make special dishes with them. And it's only been more recently that we decided that those foods are either too weird for us or they're like poverty food and they're only for people who don't have enough money to afford, you know, the high-quality, expensive muscle meat that we're we're so obsessed with now. And the problem with this is that muscle meat is far less nutritious than almost any other part of the animal. In fact, if you look at just liver, for example, liver is so incredibly nutritious. Um, and not only that, but all the other parts of the animal, especially what's in bones and cartilage, connective tissue, it's really high in the amino acid glycine. And most people are probably not getting enough glycine in their diet counteract all of the methionine that we eat from muscle meat because that's an amazingly high source of methionine. And we don't have a lot of clinical data right now in terms of what an imbalance of those two amino acids acids do in humans, but we do have some mouse and rat studies showing that giving rats more glycine mimics um, the uh, longevity lifespan increasing properties of methionine restriction, which is a big mechanism behind why calorie restriction and protein restriction seems to extend life in certain animal models. And so for people who are eating a lot of muscle meat, I have a very strong recommendation to incorporate other parts of the animal and maybe cut down on the muscles and start eating more organs and start cooking with bones and bone broth and um, enjoy the entire animal eating it nose to tail instead of just focusing on the muscle meat. Cause that's really kind of the 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 least nutritious part of the animal, even though we we seem to like it so much. Yeah, I fell off the wagon because I remember when I saw you speak, I was like, oh, I went out and I got lamb liver, I got beef liver, <laughs> and ground organs, and then I would put that in with the ground beef because I just cannot eat ground organs. <laughs> By yeah, there's a lot of but, people. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've kind of fell off the wagon. I'm going to start back on that and getting some more organ meat. And they're actually they're actually cheaper when you you get they the are. Uh, funny yeah yeah. So they're cheaper, but most yeah. people avoid them because we think that they are you know they're not edible, but they're good. You just have to figure out a way to kind of manipulate them. And I figured out a way, but I fell off the wagon. I got to get back to that. I got yeah, I think I have about wagon. yeah yeah. I have two minutes, and um, I don't want to keep you more than an hour. Denise, last question for you. What are you eating? We need to follow you. What, what is, are you eating? Besides fig. I'm, I'm, I'm actually a like and I live on sunlight. What? Sorry. <laughs> I, I said that. <laughs> no, I was well, saying that I read in the book. Is, Go ahead. Oh, in the book? Oh, yeah, I read in the book. <laughs> yeah, about well, fig. Well, my current diet, yeah, I'm kind of doing a fusion 
between all the things that have worked for me throughout the years. And I actually still eat a very large portion of my diet as raw food, especially raw fruits and vegetables, um, green juices I really love. I tend to eat most of my animal products raw, but that's kind of limited at this point to like sushi-grade fish and egg yolks. Like I always eat those raw for the most part. Um, apart from that, I actually don't eat a lot of red meat. I've noticed, especially when I've eaten cooked red meat, even if it's gently cooked, I tend to get arthritis in the elbow that I shattered. Um, in 2009, I got in a car accident, and I have a, a, an elbow that's kind of messed up a little bit, and I tend to get really bad arthritis in it when I eat red meat. So I don't, I don't actually eat a lot of red meat, and that's my my own my reason is because it it kind of messes up my elbow. Um, I tend to eat, in terms of grains, I actually do eat rice semi-frequently, usually when I'm eating sushi, and I have uh, actually respond very well to that. Um, my diet is fairly low in fat. I don't actually eat a lot of added fat in, the term, in terms of oils. Um, I don't do too well with dairy, so I don't eat a lot of that. And uh, I eat quite a few root vegetables. Um, I make bone broth, especially in the winter time. I eat mm-hmm. fermented vegetables frequently. Um, lots of salads. I'm kind of I'm pretty plant-based still. I mean, I, I value the animal product. I eat liver occasionally when I feel like it tastes good. I figure that's my, my litmus test. It's like liver looks good to me. I know I probably need it. <laughs> so that's <laughs> yeah. my, my gauge that. <laughs> um, but overall, I'm, I would say I'm like mostly raw pescatarian with some Western A-price influence and with some grains that are non-gluten. Yeah. You do a butter dairy any butter dairy i don't do i don't do dairy unfortunately i get very congested from it um mm-hmm. and butter but, but butter and coconut oil both make my skin break out and i've never been able to understand why i love the taste but i don't i don't eat it very often because of that it's in vain yeah, even, <laughs> even even raw dairy makes you congested yeah, unfortunately. There was a phase when I was doing a ton of goat dairy when I first stopped being a vegan and I just it doesn't I just get so sniffly and like nose blowy that it it becomes unmanageable. Yeah, yeah. Would you recommend? And I know I said that was the last question, but this is. Would you recommend people mm-hmm. taking short of this? Uh, it seems to me like you've taken, for lack of a better word, a guinea pig approach. You just try something, you see what works, you keep it in, or if it doesn't work, you keep out. Is that your recommendation for those out there that might be listening? In general, yes. My only. Uh, like warning about that is to make sure you're truly objective with your own body and with your own health. Because a lot of times people think they're doing like the guinea pig thing and they're actually, they have some idea in the mind, in their mind of what diet they need to feel best on. Like, oh, I need to be a low carber or like, I, oh, I need to be a vegetarian. And that belief can be so strong that it overrides your, your conscious beliefs about what your body's responses are. So be ruthless in your objectivity and then be a guinea pig for yourself. And I do recommend that. Yeah. Uh, I I would recommend that as well. But you're the expert. Cool. <laughs> but Denise, what's your um what's your website? Oh sure. It's www.rawfoodsos.com. Rawfoodsos.com. Okay. Yep. Denise Manger, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you being on tonight. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Are you writing any other? You're, I'm sure you're going to write another book. You have to. I, I have one percolating, yes. 
Okay. Okay. Well, you'll have to come back on when you, when you have the other book. The book yeah, is in ten years. <laughs> the book is Death by Food Pyramid. Pick it up on Amazon. I had it on Kindle. I love Kindle because I can while I'm reading, I just put my finger on the screen and highlight it, and then I make my questions from that. But if you are a hard book reader, you be my guest and go on and purchase it and have it come to in hardcover. But I love my Kindle. But Denise Maker, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a great evening. You too. All right. Death by Food Pyramid. Like I said, go check that out. It's on Amazon. You can pick it up and read it. Um, very entertaining book. Uh, like I said, I mentioned that a lot of this stuff is a hot mess. When you Denise breaks it down and you can really follow it, and this is nothing less than what I experienced in being in pharma, the way that things are covered up, the way that things are political more than you know, helping out the individual themselves. Next week, there won't be a show. We're actually going to be doing two shows a week after next week. One one show, there'll be Monday, will be Becca T-Bond. We'll be talking about a little bit about fitness. And then on Wednesday, we'll be talking to Kayla T. Daniel. We'll be talking about soy. For all those people out there who think soy is a health food, this show is going to change your mind. I'm very excited about getting Kayla T. Daniel on. And I think her book is called The Whole Soy Story. And then again, Monday, it'll be Becca T-Bond. We'll be talking a little bit about fitness and mommies and how can you fit exercise into your busy routine and, and get the best results. So that'll be a good show as well on the Monday after next. So I, I believe that's the last week of April. And then we'll start all again in May, which I'm looking forward to. One of my favorite holidays is the Memorial Day weekend. You can just chill out and relax and do whatever you want to do. So again, this has been Darren Fat Man McDuffie. I help you become perfectly healthy and tone. I'll see you same fat time, same fat station a week after next, not next week. Thanks for listening. Good night. Peace and love.